Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is episode 17. This podcast contains graphic language and is not suitable for children. Here we are, episode 17, the end of the road for this part of the Car Barn Murder series. I left off last week by offering my opinion and evidence that Captain Volton's confidential informants were James Weir and his sister, Neva Berardinelli. I believe they're the ones that gave the details about the planning of the car barn murders in 1940, and then James Weir came forward again in 1954. I've also placed the information about my primary suspect, William Clark, into your hands, along with the requirements to make a finding of guilty or not guilty regarding the robbery and murders of Emery Smith and James Mitchell. If you'd like to participate in that, you can render your verdict on the Shattered Souls Facebook page. I've set up a poll, and I would truly appreciate your objective consideration. That said, William Clark didn't act alone. I believe his accomplices were Walter Oliver and Robert Janney, and that Francis Gregory was an unwitting accessory before the fact. I had a lot of information to work with regarding William Clark, since he was interviewed by the detectives along with his girlfriend Mary Branch. Neither Walter Oliver nor Robert Janney were interviewed about their possible involvement, so any information I have was provided through letters, third parties, official documents in the file, and in newspaper reports and ancestral records. Even though I don't have Oliver and Janney's own words regarding the Carbarn case, and I need to rely on what they confess to other people, the information is still compelling. Let me begin with Walter Oliver. He was born in Washington, D.C. in 1905. He lived in Prince George's County, Maryland as a child, and his father, Walter Oliver Sr., was an electrician. His mother, Minnie, was a homemaker. The Olivers owned their home by 1910, and they had a servant, so apparently they were pretty well off financially. By 1920, the family moved southeast of D.C. into Suitland, Maryland, near Washington National Cemetery, and Oliver's father was employed at the Navy Yard, just across the 11th Street Bridge. Walter Oliver was arrested for grand larceny in 1924 when he was 19. There's no further information on the disposition of that case, and Walter Oliver falls off the radar as far as official records between 1924 and 1940, and there are no prison records publicly available for the state of Maryland or D.C. Jail informant Horace Davis said that he and Oliver were in prison together in 1932. Davis also admitted that the two of them robbed a bootlegger in 1933. That was verified by Volton. Davis said that he was picked up at 10th and E Street by Walter Oliver in August of 1935, so those years are partially accounted for. To dig a little deeper, I contacted the Maryland and Washington, D.C. archives, and they searched for any court documents for Walter C. Oliver. There were none. I was told by the researcher in Maryland that although they have documents that go all the way back to the founding of our nation, there was nothing under Walter Oliver's name or any record of the court document written by the U.S. District Attorney when the case was filed against Oliver in 1938. The archivist said that was pretty unusual, but there was nothing in the historical documents to be found. Because of that, I had to rely on the information from Horace Davis, who signed a sworn affidavit about his August 1935 encounter with Walter Oliver. Now, there's a big difference between a witness statement and a sworn affidavit. 
Both are legal documents, but in an affidavit, you're making a sworn statement regarding the truthfulness of your testimony in front of witnesses, and you can be subject to perjury if your information is found to be untrue. Witness statements aren't taken under oath, and they're not subject to perjury. Now, here's an interesting fact. Horace Davis's sworn affidavit was signed by two witnesses, D.C. police detectives Floyd Truscott and Earl Hartman. Remember those names? Truscott and Hartman were the district detectives that Superintendent of Police Ernest Brown said were too busy in 1937 to work on the Carborn case. But less than one year later, they were witnesses to Horace Davis's sworn affidavit at the U.S. District Attorney's Office on that official court document. Of all of the detectives in the district, why would Ernest Brown choose Truscott and Hartman? I know exactly why that happened, and the reasons are pretty transparent and, frankly, pretty infuriating. Captain Earl Hartman was in charge of the Special Investigation Squad, the spying Gestapo, that ran D.C. detectives Richard McCarty and future corrupt Chief of Police Robert Barrett back to patrol. Horace Davis provided credible evidence on the Carborn case, and the district police needed their own insiders, Confederate investigators present at Davis's interview to front-run that information and bring it back to Superintendent Ernest Brown. Brown chose Truscott and Hartman for a reason. Rather than using Frank Brass, Richard McCarty, or Robert Barrett, the three detectives actually assigned to the Carborn case. Why? Because the murders had been hushed up for three years by 1938 when Horace Davis signed that sworn affidavit, and it was incumbent upon Superintendent Brown to keep it that way, lest he incur the wrath of D.C. Commission President Melvin Hazen and his cousin and co-conspirator on the Carborn case, Jonas Willard Green. Superintendent Brown could trust Truscott and Hartman to torpedo Horace Davis's information and ensure the case against Walter Oliver and others, meaning William Clark, went nowhere, which was exactly what happened. By having district police ringers Truscott and Hartman at Horace Davis's interview, any information Horace Davis provided could be invalidated. Walter Oliver's case would stall, and then it would be summarily buried. The reason that no documents exist in the court archives is because that paperwork, with the exception of one single piece of paper preserved in the Montgomery County case file, was destroyed a long time ago. No paperwork, no case. To refresh your memory and go a little further with what I could find out, Horace Davis said that he and Walter Oliver had been friends since 1920 when they were in the Maryland Training School for Boys together. I verified that information in the census records. They did go to the training school together, along with another man named Gilbert Foreman. He was the husband of Nolia Foreman, a friend of Robert Janney's, whom he wrote to from prison in 1936. That connects Walter Oliver with Robert Janney via their mutual friend, Gilbert Foreman. Horace Davis also stated that he and Walter Oliver were in the Maryland House of Corrections together in 1932. There were no details about Walter Oliver's charges or why he was incarcerated. Horace Davis was in jail at that point for the robbery and abduction of a taxi driver. 
Both Oliver and Davis were on probation in August of 1935 when they met again. In Davis's sworn affidavit, he said that Walter Oliver picked him up and offered to drive him home. On the way, Oliver confessed to pulling the car barn job. When Horace Davis asked Oliver if he really was the one who did it, Oliver said, hell yes, and said he was with a couple of fellows. He confessed that they killed the man in the creek, my Uncle Emery, because he recognized one of us, and that he might as well have killed a hundred after already killing one, meaning James Mitchell. Oliver also said they went northbound on Connecticut Avenue from the ticket office. Horace Davis told detectives Volton and Rogers that he was telling the truth, and to prove it, Davis admitted to the other robbery from 1933 that he committed with Walter Oliver. The detectives followed up and found that claim to be true. The gun that Oliver gave to Davis for that robbery was a 32 caliber semi-automatic, the same caliber and type used in the car barn murders. Volton and Rogers also went to Walter Oliver's wife's house and found seven cars in the yard. The Hup Coupe, described by Horace Davis, had stolen plates and a couple of the cars weren't registered at all. A few days after Volton got the information as to where Walter Oliver was living, his electrical shop and apartment burned to the ground in the middle of the night. Oliver had opened that electrical shop shortly after the robbery and murders. Volton and Rogers also found out that Walter Oliver ran a speakeasy with his cousin Douglas and his wife, Mildred Oliver. Mildred was seen in the fall of 1934 loitering at Dan's hot dog stand during the time when William Clark worked at Chevy Chase Lake. Horace Davis also gave the detectives Robert Janney's name and said that he was a good friend of Walter Oliver's. By 1940, Walter Oliver opened another electrical shop in Capitol Heights and he was living with his wife. On his World War II draft card, Oliver stated that he was doing work for the University of Maryland and by 1950, according to the census, Oliver was back in prison at the Maryland State Penitentiary in Baltimore for unknown charges. Walter Oliver's confession to Horace Davis is really compelling since it aligns with all of the known circumstances. The fact that the state of Maryland started a case against Oliver, even though it was buried, is also critical. The details that Horace Davis gave in his sworn affidavit are details that only a suspect would know. And in return for his statement, Davis requested to be transferred from the D.C. jail to a designated penitentiary to serve out his sentence. Davis was fearful of retaliation after he spoke with Volton and Rogers, and as with nearly all informants, Davis asked for a quid pro quo. But what he didn't ask for is more important. Davis didn't ask for a reduced sentence or early parole. He just asked to be transferred to another penitentiary for his own safety. I don't find that unreasonable. Horace Davis was certainly no choir boy, but he didn't seem to have any ulterior motive to provide the information about Walter Oliver. Now, to finish Walter Oliver's connection to the car barn murders, I uncovered 14 direct links. Number one, Oliver's confession to Horace Davis that he pulled the car barn job. Number two, Oliver's statement that there were two other men involved. Number three, Oliver's admission that the man in the creek, Emery Smith, recognized one of them, which is why he was killed. Number four, Oliver's further admission that they had already killed one, so they may as well have killed a hundred. Number five, Oliver's 32 caliber semi-automatic that he gave to Davis when they committed the robbery in 1933. 
Number 6. Oliver's statement about going northbound on Connecticut Avenue rather than south back through Chevy Chase. Number 7. Oliver's purchase of his electrical shop right after the robbery and murders. Number 8. That electrical shop suspiciously set a fire a year later, right after Detective Volton asked the Capitol Heights town officer about Oliver. Number 9. Oliver's collection of cars, including one with a stolen plate that was registered to a known owner of a stolen auto parts business. Number 10. Oliver's name on the registration of the Hup Coupe, which was described by Horace Davis as the vehicle used to pick him up. Number 11. Oliver's known friendship with Robert Jenny. Number 12. Mildred Oliver, the part owner of the speakeasy, being seen at Dan's hot dog stand when William Clark worked at Chevy Chase Lake. Number 13. Oliver's affiliation with that speakeasy on E Street that he ran with his cousin Douglas and Mildred. And number 14. The state of Maryland started a case against Walter Oliver and others in 1938 that went nowhere. Are Walter Oliver's confession and those links enough to find him guilty as an accomplice? Well, I'll leave that up to you. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. That brings me to the second accomplice, Robert Janney. He was born on November 29, 1899, to Charles and Josephine Janney. All of Robert's siblings died at a young age, and after his father died, Josephine didn't have the means to care for only child Robert, and he was sent to live with two wealthy family friends until he turned 18. Janney then moved with Josephine to an apartment on New York Avenue Northwest, a rough-and-tumble area of D.C., Janney possessed a pretty decent skill set, and he listed his occupation as a steam fitter in the April 1930 census. But on May 12, 1930, Janney was arrested for reckless driving when he chased a woman down during the ongoing investigation of the Mary Baker murder case. Janney was named as a suspect in the Baker homicide, and he gave an alibi of being in New York City, which was found to be true through a pawn ticket found in his room. Detectives also found a 32 caliber semi-automatic pistol in his room, and after his arrest, a newspaper article quoted a D.C. detective who said that Robert Janney had spent two terms in the district reformatory for stealing cars in the years prior, along with a violation of the Mann Act, human trafficking, in 1928. The woman that Robert Janney chased down was the wife of a prominent district pharmacist, and just two months later, Janney would be arrested for a violation of the Harrison Narcotics Act. That was in July of 1930. Both Janney and his mother, Josephine, were busted 
as the main DC distributors in an East Coast heroin trafficking ring that extended all the way to New York. Janney had heroin in his pocket when federal agents took him into custody. Janney pleaded guilty to possession, but not guilty to distribution. Bail bondsman Max Weinstein put up $1,500 for Josephine and $5,000 for Janney to get them out of the DC jail pending trial. Max Weinstein was no angel either, and he was known to stuff large amounts of cash up the chimney flue of his palatial house. Janney and Josephine's accomplice in that drug ring, a man named Jack Callahan, got a five-year sentence, but the outcome for Janney and Josephine was never reported, and it's unknown. Josephine died in 1933, and Janney was out of jail by the middle of 1932. On July 5, 1932, Janney was arrested for DUI and reckless driving, and he managed to break out of jail, but he was recaptured a few hours later. By January of 1935, the time of the car barn murders, Robert Janney was living in Baltimore, and he worked as a night watchman for the Baltimore Salesbrook Company. Time cards in his own handwriting showed that he wasn't working on Sunday, January 20th, or Monday, January 21st, 1935, the night of the murders. By October of 1935, Janney was arrested again, this time for aggravated battery when he broke his wife Lillian's nose. While he did three months for that, he was charged with armed robbery and got an eight-year prison sentence. Robert Janney was in the Maryland State Penitentiary with William Clark after he was sentenced for the attempted murder of Mary Branch. Detectives Volton and Rogers learned about Robert Janney through Horace Davis, who said that Janney was a good friend of Walter Oliver's. The detectives met with his wife, Lillian, and she picked out photographs of both William Clark and James Weir and said that she'd been introduced to them by Janney. Lillian also told the detectives that in May of 1935, Robert Janney confessed to her that he had gotten mixed up on a job in Chevy Chase with a woman and three other men, and they had to shoot their way out. Lillian also said that one morning in January of 1935, around the time of the murders, Janney came home with his pants soaking wet up to the knees. He sat around all day, acting really nervous, and jumped when an insurance salesman knocked on the door. Volton and Rogers had Lillian meet with Janney in prison, and they gave her a pre-planned story, that a man had been arrested for the Carborn case, and he had talked to the police. Robert Janney flipped a nutty turned sheet white and asked if it was James Moody. There was no police file under that name, and I believe that James Moody was actually the male confidential informant, James Weir. Robert Janney's World War II draft card indicated that he was still in prison in March of 1942, and he listed his daughter, Josephine, as his personal contact. In 1943, Janney was out of prison, and he was working as a deck engineer on the SS William Paca, bound from New Orleans to Suriname, South America. He continued that work into the 1950s on the SS Anniston City, going back and forth from New York to Port of Spain, Trinidad. Was that the only work he could get, or was Janney purposefully staying away from the D.C. area? I don't know, and I don't have any further information. Robert Janney's rap sheet was long. Stolen cars, narcotics trafficking, human trafficking, aggravated battery, reckless driving, DUI, armed robbery, and escape. 
I can safely say that Robert Janney was a dangerous multiple felon with very little to lose. Robert Janney was the lodestar between the suspects. He knew William Clark, James Weir, and Walter Oliver. Lillian said that he came home one morning in January of 1935 with wet pants. Emery Smith had been dragged into Rock Creek by two men. One was likely William Clark, the other Robert Janney. That also tells me that Walter Oliver might have been the getaway driver, since Oliver said that they killed the man in the creek because he recognized one of us. He did. William Clark. Janney told Lillian that they had to shoot their way out, which would mean James Mitchell inside the ticket office, and Janney also said that he got some $100 out of it. Janney also said that the Chevy Chase murders involved a woman and three other men. The female informant, who I believe was Neva Berardinelli, said that there was a planning meeting at Green's Beauty Salon and that Jonas Willard Green, William Clark, Duffy the Mechanic, a man named White, and a woman named Emmanuel were present. That would be a woman and three other men if Janney was one of the men at the meeting. Janney's information about the gender and number of people involved at that beauty salon meeting was spot on with the female informant's information. Lily and Janney cooperated with Volton and Rogers by visiting with Janney in prison. Lillian also received letters from Janney asking her who was after her, why she wouldn't tell Janney what she had told the detectives, and she wrote a hurried letter to Volton saying that Janney was going to write to the place where she worked, and if he did, you know what that means. Lillian was clearly frightened of somebody, and Lillian Janney disappeared in 1936. To sum it all up, this is the laundry list for Robert Janney as the second accomplice. Number one, Janney had a history of stealing cars, and I believe the green Buick that was stolen from 15th and Irving Street was used in the crime. Number two, he had access to a 32 caliber semi-automatic since one was found in his room in 1930. The disposition of that gun is unknown. Number three, he wasn't working on the night of the murders. Number four, he came home with wet pants and acted really nervous all day around the time of the car barn murders. Number five, in May of 1935, he confessed to being involved in the Chevy Chase job to Lillian and said he got $100 out of it. Coincidentally, that confession was during the same time that William Clark tried to kill Mary Branch and that story hit the papers. Number six, he told Lillian that they had to shoot their way out. Number seven, he said the crime involved a woman and three other men, information that aligned with Volton's female informant. Number eight, Janney had a violent history and a rap sheet that was pages long. His mother was dead and his daughter had been placed into an orphanage. Robert Janney had nothing to lose. And number nine, Robert Janney was in prison with William Clark, which would have given both of them the opportunity to collude and make sure that anyone on the outside kept their mouths shut, including Lillian and Mary Branch. I think the evidence against Robert Janney speaks for itself, but again, I will leave that decision up to you. And finally, we come to Francis Gregory. I gave you the verbatim statement from Gregory's interview in episode 11. In that interview, he talks about times, running trolleys to the main office barn, 
another motorman taking off his galoshes, lying down on the bench in the trainman's room, and it ends with Gregory saying that he believed William Clark was in on the car barn job. I took Francis Gregory's own words, and I pitted them against what several other witnesses said, the times involved, his actions, the evidence described from the scene, and what we now know about his friendship with William Clark and Mary Branch. In addition, I also found out during my investigation that the key found in my Uncle Emery's pocket didn't go to the front door of the ticket office, meaning that Francis Gregory was the only person present who could have possibly unlocked that door. Focusing on the night of the murders, let me start with Francis Gregory's clothes, the biggest clue, and break down the various statements by both Francis Gregory and the other witnesses. John Stout, remember him? He was the evening accounting clerk. He made the following statement. At about three o'clock, I left the room where Mitchell and I had been attending to the business of the company, went in through the back conductor's room out to the porch where I got another bag for the money. On my way back through the conductor's room, I stopped to speak to Emery Smith. I saw a man, one of the employees, laying on two benches which were put together to make a bed-like place to lay down on. I asked Smith who he was, and he said he thought it was a man named Gregory. The man had all of his clothes on, including his shoes. I feel positive that this man did have his shoes on at the time. I'm willing to take an oath to the fact that he did have his shoes on when I saw him lying on this bench at about 3 o'clock that morning. Gregory also had an overcoat pulled over him. Parker Hanna, the conductor who arrived first at the ticket office, said this. After Jones and Abersold came back from the firehouse, the three of us went into the trainman's room in the back part of the ticket office where another employee was seen lying on a wood bench. This man was named Gregory. He had his shoes and coat off, and I'm positive he was asleep. When Jones told him that Mitchell had been murdered, Gregory jumped up and ran outside in his stocking feet in the snow. Jones ran after him and caught him about 50 or 75 feet away. He was then brought back into the ticket office. The door leading to the trainman's room was unlocked. The door leading to the locker room, which adjoins the trainman's room, the door leading from the trainman's room to the back porch, the windows to the locker room on the north side of the building were all unlocked. Gregory's coat was on the table in the middle of the trainman's room. There were fresh mud tracks on the windowsill inside the locker room. The outside screen to these windows were freshly broken, and there were one man's tracks, fresh in the snow, outside this window. Gregory had black, low shoes. Linwood Jones, the second man on the scene, said this, We returned to the barn and Abersold went through to the back office and found the back door was unlocked and I saw Gregory asleep on the bench. I had to shake him pretty hard to wake him up and I told him that Mr. Mitchell had been murdered and he didn't believe me and he became very nervous and he put on his coat and went out. And later on, Gregory said it was strange that he had not heard a shooting and wondered why they didn't see him. At this time, Gregory had his coat off, his shirt out of his trousers, and I believe his shoes off. And we have Francis Gregory's own words. At this time, Mr. Mitchell and Stout were in the cage, and I went into the trainman's room and took a leak, and I took my coat and laid it on the bench and laid down. This was about 1.40 a.m., and I heard the crew that's due in at 1.54. They usually get in a little ahead of time because they don't have so many to haul at that hour. They were in about 10 minutes, and when they started out, the motorman, Batten is his name, and the conductor's name is John's Blonde, 
Batten told me I'd better pull off my overshoes because in the morning my feet wouldn't be worth a damn, and he asked me if I wanted him to pull them off for me, so he pulled them off before he left the room. I went to sleep, and sometime during the night I woke up. I was hot because Mr. Smith had fixed the fire, and at this time I opened two windows on the Columbia Country Club side. I think these windows have screens on the outside. I'll tell you what I think about this murder. I think that they forced Mr. Smith to get Mitchell to open the door, but of course, that don't sound right either, because it looked like that Mr. Mitchell was shot while he was sitting in his chair. I've come out from the trainman's room early in the morning and found Mr. Mitchell asleep in his chair. In fact, I thought he was asleep. Okay, I won't make you figure it all out, so here's a breakdown of those statements. Francis Gregory said that he put the coat down on the bench to go to sleep at 1.40. He woke up when the next trolley crew came in at 1.54. Batten pulled off his galoshes at around 2 o'clock, leaving his low-cut black shoes still on his feet. He said that at some point, Emery Smith fixed the fire. He got hot as a result and opened two windows on the south side of the office. At 3 o'clock in the morning, John Stout met with Emery Smith in the trainman's room and they saw Francis Gregory on the bench. John Stout would take an oath that Gregory had his shoes on and that his coat was pulled over him like a blanket. John Stout also said that Emery Smith had knocked on the front door for James Mitchell to let him into the office between 2 o'clock and 2.30. Parker Hanna said that at 5.15, Gregory's coat was on the table in the middle of the room, his shoes were off, and he ran out into the snow in his socks. Linwood Jones said that he had to shake Gregory to wake him up, and Gregory became nervous, put on his coat and went out after Jones told him about Mitchell. He said he believed Gregory's shoes were off, his coat was off, and his shirt was untucked from his pants. Here's a crucial fact. On January 21, 1935, at 3 o'clock in the morning, it was 24 degrees Fahrenheit outside. That's according to official historical weather data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Based on aerial photographs of the ticket office, the fireplace was located on the south wall of the building inside the trainman's room, right near the area where Francis Gregory had set up that bench to go to sleep. Gregory said that my Uncle Emery had fixed the fire at some point and he got hot so we opened two windows in 24-degree weather. John Stout said that Gregory had his overcoat pulled over him like a blanket at 3 o'clock. Why open two windows to allow that frigid air into the building instead of just taking your overcoat off your body or moving the bench further away from the fireplace? Francis Gregory's coat was on the table at 5.15, according to Parker Hanna, he was also in his socks by that time, and his shirt was untucked, according to Linwood Jones. Volton and Rogers also interviewed three other transit workers from Chevy Chase Lake, and all three of them said that Francis Gregory was a light sleeper. But Linwood Jones said he had to shake Gregory pretty hard to wake him up. Now here's another issue. My great-aunt Edith, Emery's widow, was questioned by the detectives to see if she could offer any help. Aunt Edith inadvertently gave them some information that also discredits Francis Gregory's story. This is what she said. 
Now in reference to his methods of working, he told me that after he would finish his work, he would get into a car and take a nap, and he would always try to finish before the lights went off. Mr. Smith told me he didn't have to take care of the furnace anymore, and he even remarked about the fire being out some mornings. His car was locked, and his lunch was inside of the car, and he never touched it. His flashlight has not been found, and the key used to punch the time clock card is still missing. First, the power station would shut off at 2 o'clock in the morning, and that included the lights at the car barn. Emery Smith's flashlight was missing. According to Parker Hanna, three or four of the trolley car's lights were on, but none of them had been pulled out of the barn into the circle out front. Emery Smith no longer had to take care of the furnace, and the fire was out on some mornings. Aunt Edith also said that Emery tried to get his work done before two o'clock, and he would take a nap in one of the trolley cars. James Mitchell let him into the office via the front door between two o'clock and two-thirty, according to John Stout. Emery Smith was with John Stout in the trainman's room at three o'clock. Stout made no mention about my great-uncle fixing the fire, but he did say that the locker room door was kept shut to keep the cold air out. Uncle Emery punched his time clock card at 4.23. He was at the barn when he did that. The shooting happened between 4.30 and 4.35, according to Charles Smallwood and Ernest Carter, the two witnesses. Francis Gregory laid down to sleep at around 2 o'clock after the last trolley crew left the office. He was in the trainman's room when Emery Smith was in the office after Mitchell let him in. Gregory either didn't hear or didn't acknowledge John Stout and Emery Smith at 3 o'clock. There's no mention about what time Emery Smith supposedly fixed the fire, but Gregory was in that room, on the bench, but he made no mention of Emery Smith being in there with him at any point. Emery Smith left the office at around 3 o'clock, and Mitchell locked that front door behind him. Emery went to the barn to ready the trolleys, punched his time clock card, and according to Aunt Edith, take a quick nap, as was his habit when his work was done. Now by that time, the lights in the barn were off via the power station, so he probably had his flashlight with him, and he switched on the trolley car headlights to provide more light in the barn. His flashlight was still missing by January 28th when Aunt Edith was interviewed. So when exactly did Emery Smith fix the fire? Francis Gregory asserted that he was so hot that he had to open two windows in 24-degree weather. He laid down on that bench to sleep with his coat on the bench underneath his body at 1.40. He got cold, not hot and he used his coat as a blanket by 3 o'clock. Gregory's shoes were on his feet at 3 o'clock, but they were off by 5.15. The window on the north side was unlocked with muddy shoe prints on the windowsill and one man's tracks outside in the snow. The detectives also found handprints on a rock near the miniature golf course, showing that someone had stopped and sat down. During his interview, Francis Gregory said that he and the officer found footprints on the wall beside the office that morning. Now, unraveling Francis Gregory's motives and actions was pretty baffling, and it took me a long time to untangle. In my estimation, Francis Gregory 
was complicit before the fact, but not by his own design. William Clark told Francis Gregory to make sure that the front door was unlocked that night. Francis Gregory didn't have any idea about the robbery plan, but he did that as a favor for his friend. Francis Gregory was young, naive, and gullible. He was an easy mark for a master manipulator like William Clark. I believe that William Clark conned Francis Gregory by telling him that he got his job back and he would be in early Monday morning to collect his equipment, just like Clark told several others during his two trips to the office on Saturday. James Mitchell wouldn't open that front door for anyone but my Uncle Emery and the conductors listed on the board. James Mitchell knew their voices. William Clark told Gregory to leave the front door unlocked because Clark knew that Mitchell wouldn't unlock it for him. Francis Gregory bought William Clark's explanation about returning to work on Monday morning, and Gregory unbolted the front door without any foreknowledge of what was to come next. Francis Gregory probably was asleep on the bench by 4.30, but he woke up when he heard the voices and four gunshots in the next room. That explains why Gregory said he wondered why he didn't hear a shooting and why they didn't see him. First of all, who's they? That implies more than one suspect. And how did he know there was a shooting if he slept through the whole thing? From his position on that bench, he could hear the two employees enter the office at 1.54 after he laid down at 1.40 to go to sleep, so there's no doubt in my mind that he heard the gunshots, the chaos, and multiple voices in that money cage during the robbery and murder of James Mitchell. Why didn't William Clark, Robert Janney, and Walter Oliver see Francis Gregory? Because Gregory panicked, and he ran out of the back door, leaving it unlocked, and Gregory was the one who waited in the snow on that rock, leaving his handprints behind, until he heard, or saw, Clark, Janney, and Oliver leave. That's why Gregory was the sole survivor. He ran and hid, instead of meeting his own demise inside that office. He re-entered through the north window, leaving his muddy shoe prints on the wall and the windowsill, the reason for his own observation of seeing the footprints on the wall beside the office, they were the scuff marks that he left behind. He took off his cold, wet shoes, which was why he ran outside in his socks when he was shaken awake and informed of Mitchell's murder later that morning. Since Gregory had left shoe prints in the snow out that back door when he ran to hide, shoe prints that would have been found by the police, he ran out of that same door in front of Parker Hanna, Linwood Jones, and Robert Abersold to cover up the previous shoe prints he'd left behind, which would have instantly negated his story about sleeping through the murder. He was the only person left alive, and he had to convince everyone that he slept through the crime. His shirt was untucked from his pants, which likely happened when he came back inside through that window. There's one more thing. Parker Hanna reported that Gregory's car was not parked outside. He rode in on the trolley. Francis Gregory had no ride home. No trolleys were going to leave the barn until 5.30. He was stuck, alone in the office with a dead man on the floor. He had few options. 
He had nowhere to go. His only alternative was to fake being asleep when Parker, Hannah, and the others arrived. Do I believe that Francis Gregory knew the whole plan? Absolutely not. Do I believe that he knew and did a lot more than he admitted? Yeah, I also believe that he was petrified of William Clark, as well he should have been, and he tried to help the detectives by dropping William Clark's name as a suspect during his interview. He had to unload that part of his conscience without implicating himself as an accessory before the fact, unwitting or not. I don't believe that Francis Gregory would have ever hurt anyone for any reason. His only fault was trusting William Clark, a con artist who he thought was a friend. Francis Gregory left the transit company and he opened his own construction business, F.E. Gregory & Sons in 1955. His business was awarded several million dollar contracts through the district over the next few decades for road improvements and new pipelines. Francis Gregory died in 1987, just a couple of weeks shy of his 76th birthday. He was never re-interviewed. That brings me to the end of this part of the Car Barn Murder series, but I'll be back with more information and a few surprises, so be sure to stay tuned and head to the Shattered Souls Facebook page to get updates, links, behind-the-scenes information, and to ask me any questions. This journey ain't over, folks. And I'd like to give special thanks to everyone, especially my wife, who have given me support and encouragement as the case moved along and for following my investigation every step of the way. And to the family members of any of the people involved, you always have an open invitation to do an interview and give your thoughts about your relative for a future episode. You know where to find me. Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. 